Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. The title of this one, Top 10 Bad Historical Movies, April 2020. Now, a few days ago, a list of the top 20 best historical movies was posted to this site. In Zoroastrianism, there is a horror Mazda, the Wise Lord. But there is also Engramanyu, the Destroyer. This list would be the Engramanyu of historical movie choices. Very bad movie choices. The core criteria for this list is the differences between education, entertainment, and indoctrination. This list is depict those movies, however well made, however well written, that were built expressly to extol liberal ideology, and in doing so, are so riven with historical inaccuracies because of that bias, they should only be taken as fiction. And relation to any person living or dead is often a coincidence. One of the best historical movies ever made was Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. That movie both educates and entertains. Now Warren Beatty's Reds, however, wishes to glamorize communist sympathizer John Reed. Most movies out of Hollywood have a progressive end. But how many times are the villains portrayed as greedy, corporate plutocrats screwing the little guy? The movies on this list intentionally play with history to make ideological points. Or, as is in the case of the Iron Lady, to diminish conservatism and its adherents. Now, documentaries present a challenge for lists similar to this because they are supposed to be historical by nature. Most documentaries are to history what the op-ed page of a newspaper is to news. There is facts, but those facts are cherry-picked to make an ideological point. There is a documentary on this list, however, because of its notoriety, its filmmaker, and a Best Documentary Oscar. I think we can all pretty much figure out what that one is. Now, we are going to count this list backwards with number 10. So let's start off with number 10, Southside With You. We have actually not seen this movie. Maybe it is one of the best historical movie biopics and rom-coms ever produced. But it is just the fact of this movie that is so hard to stomach. So much of Barack Obama himself is smoke and mirrors. He is supposed to be a brilliant strategist, but could not think of a way to pass his legislation in a consensus manner. He was supposed to be somebody to bring the country together, and yet he was one of the most divisive presidents of our time. His supporters claim his intelligence is unrivaled, but without a teleprompter in an open press conference, he would struggle to put two sentences together. Obama is a man who wrote not one, but two, two autobiographies before he was president. And this movie is a part of that. It is about one small aspect of his life in which he courted his future wife, Michelle Robinson. Perhaps the real point of this movie was a prelude to a run by the now famous Michelle Obama. From a purely commercial exercise, it is not incorrect to see an interest in this prominent and by all perceptions successful couple. Yet, whenever a movie is made about a conservative couple, such as Ronald Nancy Reagan, the film inevitably portrays the subjects negatively. More a horror movie than a traditional romantic comedy. Given Hollywood's liberalism and love of the Obamas, our only is surprised that we have not received the sequels. Washington with you. The White House with you. 
and Martha's Vineyards with you. The last part of the Obama franchise might be problematic given that due to climate change, their new $15 million mansion will be underwater by the time the cameras begin to roll. So maybe it'll be something like underwater on Martha's Vineyard with you. In any event, that is number 10. Let's move on to number nine. We're the big short. Number nine is the big short. We're the big short fictional. It would be great fun. The viewer gets Margot Robbie in a bubble bath explaining financial transactions. Now, frankly, she could be reading from the Congressional Register and it would be entertaining. The Big Short uses all manners of celebrity to break down complicated jargon. Steve Carell as Mark Baum, one of the leads of the movie, is tremendous. But that was not the point of the movie. The real goal of the movie was to depict a greedy, capitalist society that plays fast and loose and always leaves the little guy holding the bag. What Adam McKay, the creator of this, and many other anti-right, anti-capitalist romps seems to forget is, is that before capitalism, things pretty much sucked for the average Joe. Simple historical game. Would a Russian serve from the 1800s, an English peasant from the 1600s, or a Chinese peasant under Mao wish to live in their time or in 2019 America. And though some of the names have changed, Mark Baum is real-life Steve Eisman. Yes, we read the book. The, the Big Short still depicts a real time and place. Yet how can any movie that talks about the housing crisis fail to mention that leftist politicians screamed racism whenever a loan was denied to a majority? That never comes into it. One of the ironies of our time is, is that the same man who drove the housing crisis, Barney Frank, lent his name to the bill, Dodd-Frank, that solved a dilemma of his own creation. Here is Barney Frank on his mistake. In an August 2010 interview, he said, Quote, I hope by next year we'll have abolished Fannie and Freddie. It was a great mistake to push lower income people into housing they couldn't afford and couldn't really handle once they had it. Note the push, unquote. Uh, Barney Frank and the governmental push for loans to the people who could not afford them, nothing is said in the big short. One other note. Adam McKay's partner in crime on these anti-capitalist products is none other than funny man Will Ferrell. In a perfect world, these pro-left actors and actresses would have their salaries and fames redistributed. There's income inequality for you for just one year. After that time, all of Hollywood would become a conservative enclave. Number eight, all the president's men. This selection may come as a surprise as this is a well-crafted, well-acted movie that depicted a genuine low point in the American presidency. This is not a denial of historical accuracy. Instead, this movie created a media scourge. There were famous reporters before Watergate, but Woodward and Bernstein received the star treatment in near real time and were portrayed by the likes of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman. Redford was not just any actor, he was Sundance. He was Jeremiah Johnson and The Great Gatsby. The two reporters had received accolades for their work, but from the moment they became household names, every reporter wanted to be depicted as a movie star. The best path to Woodward-type fame and fortune is to find their own Watergate, but only from 
a Republican administration. They all need to be the crusading journalists. One can trace a clear line from this movie to the antics of Dan Rather, the bombastic nature of Sam Donaldson, the manipulations of Brian Williams, and the puranity of Jim Acosta. Rather than report the news, the media now want to be the news. How is that possible unless there is some dragon to slay or dirty laundry to unearth? A free press is a bulwark of the American Republic and a necessity for the protection of citizens. But the media of today are advocates, not reporters. Instead of being in the news section, they want to own the op-ed, get a few columns in the New York Times, and maybe, maybe get an invite to the Oscars. Number seven, an inconvenient truth. Are documentaries technically historical movies? These works are often done directly for the audience of the present, but they can be used for history. And we include these in with the concern that the easy social study teacher will show these works in their classes to abrogate the need for a comprehensive, well-thought-out and impactful lesson plan. In 2004's And Inconvenient Truth, for which Al Gore won an Academy Award, the first prediction was that the polar ice caps would melt in 10 years without drastic action. Remember, 2004. It is 2020. Glacier ice caps are still there, and so is Al Gore, who took the proceeds from this movie, built a 10,000-square-foot mansion, and did business with Al Jazeera, which is funded by, you guessed it, oil money. The only truth in this work is that hypocrisy continues to be a human attribute. Number six, Reds. In Warren Beatty's Oscar bait biopic about a communist sympathizer, John Reed, the hero is depicted as an idealist who finds himself at the mercy of ruthless men who warp the utopian view of communism. Beatty's and much of the left continue to believe that socialism and even some communism would be the answer to Eden on Earth if only that evil men would stop ruining the dream. They never seem to consider that communism and socialism create ruthlessness or that it singularly attracts men such as Stalin or Castro because unlike democracy and unlike capitalism, government control means control. Even the trailer portrays noblemen brought low. The reality was that Reed, and by extension Beatty, would become just another of Lenin's useful idiots. Number five, Dances with Wolves. Okay, not precisely historical, but certainly meant to be so. Every European descended individual, except for Kevin Costner's hero, Lieutenant Dunbar, is a stark, raving, vile lunatic. The Native Americans, even the enemies of the Sioux, are depicted as loving family people living in an idyllic setting ruined by the evil white man. Reality is a little different. According to one account, the Anastasia Southwest Indian tribe had nearly 50% of their population wiped out by another tribe in pre-Columbian South America. So which is closest to Eden? A nation of 330 million where the most impoverished possess iPhones and air conditioning or waking in the middle of the night by a savage Pawnee attack? I think I know which one I would take. 
It's not is that that this is completely a useless film. It's that it is obviously so one-sided, obviously built to extol the virtues of just one group that it has to be dismissed as a historical document. Number four, The Iron Lady. Most biopics either span the life of the historical figure or focus on a singular moment that encapsulates their lives. But liberal filmmakers need to tarnish one of the greatest prime ministers of British history. So they focused not on her prime years, but instead on her dotage. Understanding the value of history, liberals demean Thatcher in this way because diminish her life is his demeanor legacy of small government and personal liberty. The Iron Lady is sort of the King Lear approach to life. Show them as a senile old fool and forget what made them great in the first place. This type of depiction may have a point. They need to make a movie of Wilson after his stroke when his wife ran the country. What about a movie showing FDR ordering the internment of Japanese-American citizens? There could be an exciting thriller about how the Obama administration covered up what happened at Benghazi. wonder if Meryl Streep is up for playing Hillary Clinton. Number three, Che. What is the liberal fascination with Che Guevara? As crazy as the left can get, this was a thoroughly evil person. Guevara, the supposed champion of the downtrodden, was a supporter of the Castro regime, which has overseen thousands of political executions. Guevara fomented rebellion and chaos wherever he went, whether it was South America or Africa. The best news about Guevara's life is, is that he, unlike Juan Perón, Chavez, or Castro, never tasted ultimate power. It would have been a horrific bloodbath had he done so. Number two, any movie made by Michael Moore. Again, we're back to documentaries again, but these are, <laughs> these are barely documentaries. In fact, in some cases, they're more theatrical than the normal theatrical releases. And certainly more fictional than a lot of the science fiction. More than likely, you would probably see more real-life stuff in a Game of Thrones production or in Star Wars than you will in a Michael Moore film. One of the reoccurring themes of the conservative historian is, is that ideal history is similar to a detective story where an intrepid reporter gathers as many facts as possible and makes the best, most reasonable determination about what happened. Another approach is to come up with a preset expectation and opinion and search high and low for... Uh, is, if you will, tangential facts that fit this narrative. If those facts do not exist, make them up. Many documentaries, including the aforementioned An Inconvenient Truth, take this approach. There is a third approach, and that is, is to build a work called a documentary. In this case, you can fabricate facts to fit a pre-adorned narrative and then inject dollops of sarcasm to mask the falsities. This approach is Moore's guide to filmmaking. In a very clever move, Moore's breakthrough work, Roger and Me, was not straightforward about the economic disruption caused in Michigan by General Motors' reallocation of resources. Was GM losing market share? Were foreign companies dumping cheap automobiles on the U.S. market? Were cafe restrictions causing GM to make money losing cars that nobody wanted to buy? 
Was GM's labor force responsive to any or all of these changes? And one were looking for this in Roger and me, the viewer would see nothing, nada, nil. Instead, we have more trying to get a meeting with Roger Smith as the foreground to the economic disruption in his hometown of Flint, Michigan. At least when Al Gore discusses polar ice caps, he shows a polar bear. This is more fact than one is liable to find in a Moore doc. With every subsequent documentary, finger quotes used there, Moore moved further away from any semblance of the truth. Were people in Flint adversely affected by GM's decisions? At least that one would be correct. Is Cuba's health care system superior to that of the U.S.? As Moore contended in his sicko, his 2007 fantasy about health care? Seriously? Any possible connection between a Moore film and historical reality is purely by accident. And finally, the number one worst movie that was supposed to be some sort of a historical depiction, and that would be Birth of a Nation. So let's ask ourselves, is Birth of a Nation a liberal movie? I would think that the left would shriek at that thought, hopefully. And unlike the other works on this list, this film is not an overt attempt at spreading progressive values. This film was made by D.W. Griffiths as a piece of propaganda about what a group of white Southerners believe was a concern in the Jim Crow South, the possible power attainment of the African-American population. Yet the origins of this era are clouded by liberal historians who wish to change the narrative. It was the Republican Party that freed the slaves. The Republican Party that passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, opposed Jim Crow laws, and worked with Johnson to pass the Civil Rights Act in the mid-1960s. It was one of the darlings of the left. Woodrow Wilson, president at the time of the release of this movie, the movie Birth of a Nation, who believed in eugenics and resegregated the federal civil service. It was under the conservative president, Calvin Coolidge, when the power of the Klan broke and lynching once in the 50s per annum was down to seven in Coolidge's last year in office. But God knows Calvin Coolidge does not get that kind of credit. At the core of conservatism is a rejection of the identity politics that are a part of the Birth of a Nation movie. Whether portrayed as victims or criminals, conservatives would prefer to judge people on their individualism and the choices they make, rather on the gender, ethnicity, age, or class. We do not dismiss these factors in a person's life, but we also believe that personal agency and the choices that an individual make also dictate the course of their life. We would reject this kind of a movie as we reject identity politics. And that is, is one of the reasons why Birth of a Nation is the worst historical movie ever made. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.